Well, thank you. My name is Luke. I've been actually out of town the past few uh, weeks, so if you're new here, you may be wondering who I am. Um, um, I lead deeper on Wednesday nights, and um, I'm a deacon here. In fact, I was just thinking, I was, I was sitting there, you know, I've been serving with some of these men for almost 15 years. And we did prayer ministry at my house um, when we were all young and single in our 20s. Um, Brandon, who preached so wonderfully last week, he uh, came over to our house and he prayed uh, for our son Liam, who is now nine. I remember before he was born, he would lay, he and uh, Darnell would lay hands on Jane and we would pray for, for Liam while he was still in the womb. So that's how far I go back with some of you all that I've been walking with, you know, all of this time. And there's something wonderful about walking with people in Christ and growing with them over time. I can tell you 10 years ago, I'm not the same man that I, that I am today. God has clearly had a purpose in everything he's put me through over the last 10 years to bring me to this point. This morning, as I was getting ready, I was like, wow, you know, the circumstances that have brought me here, primarily the hardship, the hardship are what brought me to this point where I can get up before you and boldly and confidently declare the goodness of God it was, it was difficulties, and it was difficulties in this church. Had we, about four or five year ago, years ago, we had some really hard times here at Hope Works. And you know what? I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for those hard times. God is with us, and he uses all of these different circumstances to conform us to his likeness, just as Brandon so eloquently preached last week. So... Um, before, before I get into it, you know, uh, I, I have been keeping in touch with Shane. He's going to be back next week. And uh, I saw some pictures of him uh, in Israel, and there's, like, the desert behind him. It's beautiful. Actually, it reminds me of, of home. I'm from El Paso, Texas, and, and there's, there's no trees there. Whenever I, I take my family home, and I'm like, isn't this beautiful? And, and my wife is like, where are the trees? You know, uh, but you find beauty in the rocks, you know, I mean, there's, there's certain things that you kind of, uh, so, so Shane, Shane, of course, is, uh, you know, he, he says he, he loves you all. Well, kind of, he does. He kind of loves you. And, And he says, you know what, he is, he is really looking forward to coming back to preach. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe he's looking forward, you know? And, and, you know, so hopefully we'll see him next Sunday, possibly, you know? You, you see, you see, if you know Shane, you know he is so looking forward. He's going to have the brightest smile. His countenance is going to be joyful. And he is going to be so excited to be here. And I can't, I've been just so excited that he was going to go to Israel because it, it is just a, ge- a geographical place, but, you know, having, I've been to Israel, I was fortunate to, to, to be able to go there, and just seeing all of the physical locations where God brought the, the, his chosen people, the Jews, and, and where all of the life events of Jesus took place makes our faith so real. I'm not saying if you never go to Israel, you can't have it just be as real. You know, we have the Holy Spirit. But there is, especially for a pastor, to see where Jesus walked. And, you know, when I, when, when I joke about Shane being, being excited and how he's going to come back, you know for sure he's coming. We all know with certainty he's coming. And so that's really what I'm going to speak upon this morning. Because our faith is grounded in certainty. Our faith is grounded in the Word of God, the assurance that we have in God's Word, in the Gospel, in Jesus Christ. How hard would it be 
to carry the weight of your salvation on your own shoulders. But you know what? We all do it. We're all guilty of it, you know? We're all guilty of it at different times of our life, even maybe now. And so, so I'm going to walk through this, and, and I'm going to read through um, Romans 8, 31 through 39. And we're going to see that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, you know, writing, writing a sermon and getting ready is, uh, is really interesting. I spent, you know, several days preparing and once you get up here, you never know where the, where the Lord is going to take you. And so, um, um, you know, we could just throw this out, right? Uh, but um, but I, I do want to follow some points and make sure that I really cover some ground with you all today. God has been kind of working on me, and he had been speaking to me weeks ago on this particular topic of eternal security. Um, before, before we get into it, I think that as, you know, typically what I like to do it deeper is to have some context to what we're reading. A lot of times we just open up the Bible and we start reading without asking ourselves first, what is the context? Who wrote this? Who was, who was he talking to? What was going on at the time? So, so we know that Paul wrote this. He was... Possibly in Corinth when he wrote this letter to the Romans. Um, Paul, uh, as we know, uh, was, was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of Christians, possibly even a murderer of Christians. We don't have any specific details, but we can assume from the book of Acts that he was, had firsthand involvement in the persecution of Christians. Christians were terrified of him. He was a powerful and angry man. He did horrible things in the name of God, in the name of Judaism. And so, on the road to Damascus, God appeared to to Paul. and, And Jesus said to Paul, he said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul had the revelation of when Christ revealed himself, and and Paul realized that he had had it all wrong, that everything in his life that he thought he was doing was all mixed up. Have we ever had that point in our lives where we're like, wait a second, what's going on here? My whole life is is wrong. What have I been doing? And and that may be that point when you became a Christian— when you finally, you know, were able to acknowledge that you needed God to save you, maybe that was that point in your life. So we know who is writing this. Well, Paul knew that as a murderer, as someone who persecuted the church, he could never, ever earn his way to heaven. There was no amount of remediation that he could atone for by his own good works. That's why Paul is such an amazing proponent for the true, solid, raw gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel means the good news. What is the good news? The good news, let me just read it to you, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. It is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God that God gives us. So here, here Paul is. <clears throat> He's, he, he writes this letter to the, to the Romans. The Roman church was um, going to face some incredible persecution. And, and Brandon spoke last week that we all quote, we all love to quote Romans 8.28. All things work together for good, right? Even non-Christians love to quote that verse, right? But you know, just as Brandon said, that, that verse is very specific. All things work together for good for who? For those who love the Lord and are called according to 
to his purpose. And, and God is working not to make our lives easy, but to conform us to Christ's likeness. Right? And so, and so here Paul writes this letter, and he is writing this letter to the church in Rome, assuring them of the glory and the blessing and the confidence and everything that God has done for them and us so that they would stand firm and have joy in the midst of difficult times that were waiting for them. How many know, how many of you know who Nero was? How many, how many can you say you know who Nero was? Nero was an insane and horrible, horrendous emperor of Rome. And um, I should have my son come up and, and tell us about it. He's, he's st- just recently studied uh, through uh, ancient history. And um, anyway, uh, Nero, in, in, in 64 AD, just before Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, Rome had a great fire. Some people say that Nero actually may have set fire to Rome because he wanted to rebuild it and... Uh, he wanted to build, you know, do new architecture that he was able to get credit for. Well, they say that the fire of Rome burned for six days, and countless people lost their lives. So what did Nero do? He said, you know what? It was these Christians. These Christians did it. And so the, the authorities gathered up these Christians, and they executed them in horrible ways. It was even said that, that Nero lit his garden by sticking Christians uh, on, on poles uh, that had been smeared in tar, and he lit them on fire, and that's how he lit his garden. Horrible things. So, so that is the context, and, and um, you know, as, as we go, go through this, this letter, it's easy to, to just listen to these words about love. One, one thing that I like to do a deeper is go into the deeper meaning of a word. And I don't like to get caught up on the Greek or the Hebrew unless the English word just doesn't do a good enough job. And, and our English is sometimes like a blunt instrument. It's not a sharp knife that clearly articulates the meaning. In English, we have general words like love that can mean anything. Man, I love that shirt that you have on. I love those tacos that I had, you know, last night uh, on Magnolia Street. Or I could say, I I will love you forever. I want to marry you. We use the same word for everything. So in other languages, even in Spanish, we may not even, you know, we may have multiple words that relay the different connotations And so, um, you know, as I read through uh, 31 through 39, uh, I want to just delve really deeply, and and I I want God to open our hearts to what message He's trying to relay. So so as we do that, let let me just pray for us really quick. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your message of truth. We thank You for Your unfailing love. Open our hearts, open our ears, Lord. Open our minds so that we can see and know you better today. Speak through me, Lord. Speak through me. I need you this morning. And guide my words as I testify to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I want... um, I want to uh, ask my friend Rick Applegate to come up and just give a few words. Uh, Rick has has been a a dear brother to me. He has walked with me through deeper uh, for years now. And and since we're speaking on God's unfailing love, I know that that Rick is going to bless us this morning. Mercy. The mercy seat of God. I know it quite well. 
Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, there you are. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Even darkness to God is light. There is nowhere that I've ever gone, and I've been in some pretty dark places in this world, that I put myself in. But I always found God there. I've been saved since I was 11 years old. I'm thankful that God is the God of a hundred billion thousand chances. And I thank God that He pushes us on into obedience and into serving Him because He knows what's best. But even in my disobedience, His mercy. People talk about His grace. I've been drowned in His mercy for years. Because without it, I wouldn't be here. Literally, physically. I want to thank those of you that have interceded for me prayed for me, lifted me up before the throne of God and said, he's your son, help him. For those of you that uh, doubt God when you're surrounded in hell, believe me, he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He's always there. Even when I don't want to cry out to Him, He's beckoning me. He's beckoning y'all. Come home. Come back. Eternal security. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and I'm talking a relationship, I'm not saying just a quick little prayer of, okay, now I'm saved. I'm talking a relationship, getting to know Him through His Word, through spending time with Him. Doesn't matter where you go, He's with you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Rick. Rick, uh, Rick is such an eloquent speaker, and, and he has a gift for, for just communication. Um, Rick is, Rick is uh, a friend, and, and he has had some struggles, and God has always been faithful to, to bring him through those struggles. Thank you, Rick. Um, well, you know, uh, as you all know, I have three, three kids. And one thing that I'm doing right now is, is I'm trying to learn how to be a better father. And you get, you get to a point when you're an adult and you realize, okay, wait a second. You know, I don't have the tools to be a parent. And I didn't necessarily, you know, have the right examples growing up to be a father. Um, I, I came across a book a few weeks ago that really inspired me, and uh, it's a book by Dr. Meg Meeker, who is a Christian author, and she's also a pediatrician. And 
she has seen hundreds and hundreds of boys and girls and has been trying to use her knowledge to articulate what it is that children need. And so she's written a book called Hero that I just started reading. But I wrote a few things down that I thought would pertain to our talk this morning. In her book, she lists the benefits of a stable father. You know, today, fathers, I think, are, are kind of portrayed as unnecessary. Children that, that have a stable father have much higher levels of self-control, confidence, sociability. Are far less likely, the children are far less likely to engage in risky behavior as adolescents. Children with a stable father are less likely to have behavior and psychological uh, problems. Children with stable fathers are less likely to be delinquent, especially when they come from a low-income family. They do better on cognitive tests and get better grades. Are more likely to become young adults with higher levels of success and well-being. Boys who grow up to be men who live with a mean father are fearful and insecure in their masculinity. Lastly, fathers leave a lasting impact on boys and girls about what they believe about themselves. Now, if you didn't have a perfect father, it's not hopeless, you know? Because when you become a Christian, you are given a heavenly father. And your heavenly father now takes precedence. He takes spiritual, eternal precedence over your earthly father. And, and so I got to thinking that what is it that holds us back from, from fully realizing who we are as believers? Why, when we come to faith, are we still held back from fully experiencing everything that we have in the gospel? And I think that a lot of it has to do with what we believe about our Father, our Heavenly Father. So, so let, me read, let me read for us... Um, um, st- let me just start out in, in Romans uh, 31 and um, says what then shall we say in response to these things what, th- what things is, is Paul talking about he's talking about what Brandon preached on last week, that, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, and that we are to be conformed to Christ's likeness. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave up him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against any of those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? What is Paul Paul telling the Romans here? He's saying that once you belong to God, there's nothing that will separate you from Him. There's nothing Verse 31, to what things? We see, we see that our confidence has already been stated, and this is just a repeat of verses 30, or 28 through 30. 
In verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is a classic argument of the greater to the lesser. God gave us the greatest gift ever in the death of Christ while we were yet sinners. When you came to Christ, you were a sinner. You were lost, right? When you became a Christian, you were in the middle of it. God saves you in that place that you are. Have you ever, have you ever, had, have you ever invited someone to church and they, and they say, well, I've got to get my life cleaned up first? Have you heard that before? That's a fallacy. You can't clean up your life until you get Christ in your heart. So, so will God not give us the lesser things? If God gave us His own Son, will He not give us everything else that's under that? What more could He give? It's like, it's, it's, it's an example of, of like you, you're a teenager and you, you come home on your 16th birthday and there's a brand spanking new car in your driveway, right? And you try to start it and there's nothing in there. And you can't get the car to start, right? And your parents are like, well, I'm not going to pay for your gas, right? That would be ridiculous. Well, how much more? And I'm sorry to make that analogy between a car and, and our salvation, but it brings it home, right? It's a ridiculous, it would be a ridiculous thing. How much more ridiculous that Christ died for us, He suffered for us. How much, how much more will He give us everything else that's less than that? Who can successfully lay a charge against us? No one. The answer is no one. God's decision has already been made. 34. If it is God who justifies, there is no one who can condemn us. If God, the highest authority in the universe, universe, pronounces us righteousness, which is what justification is, when we are justified before God, Shane likes to say, it's just as if we had never sinned. We have our slate wiped clean. The same God can't turn around and pronounce us damned. That doesn't make any sense. If he declares us righteous, we're righteous. If God has already said that we're righteous when we sin, then sin isn't going to remove us from that righteous standing. If we could get unsaved by a lack of goodness, we would never be saved to start with. Once God justifies, the matter is settled. Verse 34, Christ died for our offenses and paid our condemnation. He was raised for our justification. Christ's death was proof of this atonement. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating His offering is satisfied. It satisfied God's wrath. We forget that we we have a, a penalty to pay. Why did Christ die? Because God is just, and there was, a, there was a price to be paid for our disobedience, for this sin that runs through our veins from Adam. We had to pay for that. that. That price has been paid in full. There's nothing that you and I can now do. You and I aren't supposed to get back up on that cross and try to pay for our own atonement for what the completed work that Christ did, for that completed work that Christ already did. When, when Jesus was dying on the cross, his last words were to telestai. It means it is finished. It is paid in full. The debt was paid in full. Have, have you ever been in debt? I have. I've, I've been in tremendous debt. And, and I know what it's like to feel that you can't keep up with that debt. And, and over the last few years, God has been working on me to rearrange my life and to free me from that financial bondage that I've been in. And I was able to pay off uh, our house um, a, a 
few months ago. And it was one of the most wonderful feelings in the world when I paid the bank and I said, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm no longer a slave and, and I no longer have to worry, are you going to take my house away, right? That's, that is what Jesus is saying. It is finished. The price has been paid. The price for you, for me, for everything that I've done. And that includes Paul. What did Paul do? He murdered Christians. Have you murdered any Christians lately? Okay, well, if, if, God, can, if God can remove that stain of sin from Paul the Apostle, I think he's able to handle yours and my sin, right? Christ continues to intercede for us. When we sin, Christ comes out in our defense and says, this has been paid for. These are mine. I've paid for these people. If we fall into trouble with the authorities, hardship, persecution, hunger, sickness, or even death, will we be abandoned by God? This must be what the Romans were thinking. If they strip me naked, they tear me out of my house, they drag me through the streets, does that mean God abandoned me? If God is with me, why am I not secure in my home? If God is with me, why is he not preventing me from any persecution? If God is with me, why hasn't he fixed the struggle that I'm in? Don't don't we all think that way? If God is if God is with me, why am I going to be taken to execution? What did I do wrong? I must not be obedient. I must not be following God. If, if I'm going to be dragged out of my home and executed by Nero or by the Roman authorities, what did I do wrong? I must have failed. I must have lost my way. I must have lost my salvation. Is that what it says here? He says, no. If we fall into trouble with the authorities, hardship, persecution, hunger, sickness, or even death... Will we be abandoned by God? No form of suffering can separate us from God once we are His. Continuing on through, through the rest of these verses, 37 through 39. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is not talking that he loves the whole world blankly and generally. These verses are directed at believers of children of God wondering and struggling how secure they are in God's grip. How secure they can securely they can trust that they will be delivered through their trials even unto death into heaven's presence. Verse 37, we are overcomers in Christ regardless of the circumstance. Persecution may come, but we know we will endure to the end. And, and, and this is where we can look back at that, verse 38, and know that God uses these hardships that we're going through. The death of a loved one, financial difficulties, loss of a job, sickness, God is going to use these things in the life of the believer for His glory. He's not going to work out all things so that you can have the American dream. He's not going to work out all of these things so that you can have an easy life. No, He's going to work out all of these things to mature me so that I will be a mature Christian, so I will be a grown-up in my faith, right? 
that I will stand firmly planted in faith so that when I get to see Him in heaven, I'm not a spiritual baby, but I'm an adult. And I know, and I know the person, the Father that I'm going to get to go spend eternity with. He's not going to be a stranger. Verse 38, even death or anything in this life we live out. Spiritual forces, the now and the future. What about the future? Well, what if something happens that could somehow draw me away from God? Or any powers, that means any spiritual powers, any demons, any powers that you can name. This is an all-inclusive list. Paul has not left anything, anything in all the world, in heaven, above, in hell, below, that can draw us and separate us from the grip of God. Verse 39, no depth from hell or anything in heaven or anything in all creation will separate us. No physical distance can separate us from God, no matter where you find yourself. If you're far from home, if you're not where you want to be, once you become his child, he will see you through to the end. So, so that, that really encompasses um, the, in, the, the crescendo of Romans 8, which Romans 8 really speaks to the believer of the confidence that we can have knowing that our faith is not left to chance. I don't want a faith that's left up to me. You know why? Because I'm not that reliable. I'm not. I really am not. I'm not that reliable. I want a faith that rests solely, 100% on God. I want a salvation that rests 100% on God. Is my salvation, did did God do 99% of the work and I did one? No, God did 100%. That's been a hard lesson for me. I'll tell you, there was a time in my life where I patted myself on the back for being a Christian. I thought at one time that I was pretty wise, that I must have spiritual insight that others didn't have. And then as God wanted to mature me, He removed the veil and showed me how lost I was without Him. And if it were not for Him calling me to Him, and removing the blindfold that I had on my eyes, I would have never, ever even thought to pursue Him. So I want to sum up today um, with, with, with something that God has been laying on my heart. And um, I had been already thinking about this before I knew what I was going to preach on today. And, and just basically driving the point home that, that we have eternal security in Christ. I think this is one of the most fundamental doctrines that we can, can preach and, and learn and teach about here in the church. But I will tell you, it's, it's not universally accepted. Not everyone believes in eternal security. And, I, and all I have to say is, like, if, if the Bible teaches it, why would we not pursue it, Right? I don't want to preach it just because I want to believe it. It's not because I want to. I want, I want to know what the Bible says. I want to be honest and transparent. I want to know what God says. If, if I am secure, then I want to know. If I'm not secure, then I want to know that too, right? I earnestly believe as I go through, and I want to take you all through some more verses that helps me to see the eternal security that we have. And really, there's a fundamental shift in our faith is who are you depending on for your assurance of your salvation? Is, is it in God? Do you have a big God theology or do you have a small God theology? Does a lot rest on your shoulders? I think the, the older I get, the more I realize that I'm hopeless without God. It terrifies me to think of me carrying my own water 
Why? Because I know that if it were up to me, I would run away, run away, run away. It is God's grace that holds me up. It is God's grace in my life that has given me firm feet to stand strong during difficult times. Some of the most difficult times, I will tell you, I was at my weakest ever. The past four years have been some of my weakest years health-wise, struggling with different afflictions. And I know that God has used these afflictions to make me run toward Him. God knew what He was doing. So, so, uh, so why, why, uh, why can we trust the Bible? That, why can we trust that the Bible... It teaches that we have security in, in, in our salvation. Let me go through five points. First, God declares it. God declares it. This lines up. What I'm about to, to read lines up perfectly with what I just read in verses 31 through 39. In fact, it lines up perfectly with 38 through 39. When Jesus was speaking in John 7, he says... Therefore, Jesus said again, Verily, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. And then he continues in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. There's no dot, dot, dot. He says, if you enter through me, you will be saved. These are definitive words. If that's not enough, he continues in verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them. If you belong to Christ, He knows you. He knows you. And they follow me. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. It doesn't say they earn eternal life. It doesn't say they merited eternal life. It doesn't say they maintained eternal life. He's Jesus himself, from his, if he was standing here today, he's, it would be as though he said, I give them eternal life. I am the one who's doing it. I'm giving them eternal life. And they shall never perish. They shall never perish. Those are absolute words. There's no corollary to that. Well, if you do this long list of different things and every church you go to will add on their own list well if you do this and that right no one will snatch them out of my hand how much more clear can you be than that I'm, I'm listening to I'm not I'm listening directly from God himself he says I give them eternal life they shall never perish no one that means you too you can't snatch yourself out of God's hands No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. See See what he did here? He said, first, look, I'm deciding this. I give eternal life. I am the guarantor of this eternal life. And if that's not enough... We're in my Father's hands. And so you have Christ, and then you have the Father, and then, he, and then you have them together saying, we've got this. We're the guarantor. I don't, I don't even, I think I can stop right there. But I'm, I'm not going to. <laughs> Salvation, by definition, is eternal. What, what is... What is What does it mean to be saved? It means to be saved from... It's not saved on this life alone, right? It's not be saved from from my own difficulties. We're not... In this life, we are not delivered from our sinful bodies. We're we're delivered here... When we get saved, we are are justified. We are regenerate. We're, We're delivered from the penalty of sin. But we're not delivered from the presence of sin. As long as we remain in this body, we will still have a struggle with this fleshly body against our sinful nature. 
Just hang around anyone else and you'll eventually be sinful and you'll get in a fight. And that's why another giant focus of the New Testament is forgiveness. To, to have unity inside a church, we have to have forgiveness because we are still fallible. Now, what happens to the Christian is that the Christian is given a rebirth and a new spirit. And they're no longer a slave to their sinful nature. See, that's the difference. Someone who doesn't know Christ is a slave to that carnal nature. They don't have a choice. They do what they do because that's who they are. They can wash the outside, but the inside is still trapped. And, and, and God has a purpose in this struggle inside of us because we have to grow spiritually and we have to rely on the Holy Spirit in order to mature as a believer. If, if we didn't have this struggle, if God just delivered us from the presence of, of sin and we never had a struggle, we would never have a maturing process take place. We would never get to know the amazing grace that God has for us. We would never know humility, right? There's so much humility, just as what Rick testified to of knowing the, the love and the goodness of God and how he continues to pour out his mercies upon us daily. So, so salvation by definition is eternal. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine 29, that the gifts and the callings of the Lord are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. When God has called you to do something, when God has given you charge for something, when he has given you a gift, he is not taking that away. He doesn't take things back. Salvation is permanent. Otherwise, think about it. It's just a reservation that can be canceled at any time. There's nothing to glory in. There's nothing that I have to glory in if, if I just has a, have a reservation that if I make my flight on time, I'm going to get to some hotel and maybe I'll get to stay there. That doesn't sound that exciting. I'm, I'm really afraid that that may be part of our problem as a church, not, not hope works, but just as a church body uh, collectively across you know, the, our country as Christians, as a body of believers, why is it that we are, are um, to use an awful word that Shane likes to use, lukewarm, uh, why, why, uh, why are we mediocre in our faith? It's because we don't know what we've been given. If we truly understood the gravity of the gospel, we would be in complete awe and jumping for joy. So, uh, can you imagine spending thousands of dollars to travel to Europe for a month and all your plans, you, you, you had to reserve, you, you bought this expensive plane ticket to, to fly to Europe is like $2,000 right now if you want a direct flight, okay? Um, and so could you imagine like you spend all this money and you have this plan to go spend a month in Europe and you call up and you don't speak Italian or, or whatever country you're calling to and, and you tell them, hey, I'm coming uh, can you reserve a room for me? But they're like, okay, we'll, we'll write you down. But you don't have a confirmation number. You don't uh, know who you spoke to. And they didn't ask for a credit card. And you just found, like, some internet address. And, and so you think that when you get to the airport, you're going to tell the taxi to go to this hotel, right? And, and your whole trip for the, for the next month is based on that. Is that how heaven is? I hope not either. Heaven's not like that. Our reservation is confirmed. Our reservation is confirmed. Salvation begins upon repentance and receiving of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. John 1.12 says it like this. Uh, Jesus, uh, as he prayed, he's, he prayed to God the Father before his crucifixion. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We have eternal life in knowing Christ, not just in a, in a, in a logical sense of, of information, but in a relational sense. He is our Abba Father. He is our Savior. 1 John five eleven through 13 puts it this way. 
And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have the Son, you have life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may... What? So you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want us to doubt. How can we know? If it's, if it's an uncertain reservation, how could we possibly know? It says it right here. That, he, that, that he's, John has written these things so that we may know with certainty how will we ever operate in the full power of the gospel unless we fully grasp the truth, the magnificence of what has been laid out before us. When we are saved, we are reconciled to God in that moment. Eternal life begins when you become a Christian because you are now living with a new you. Jesus explained it to Nicodemus as Jesus taught in John 3. We are physically born once by water. We are born once by water. For the children of God, we are born spiritually once by God's Spirit. So we're not, we're not born physically twice. We're born physically once, and we're born spiritually once. That's what it means to be born again. Jesus said that if you're not born again, you, can, you can't see heaven. This born-again experience is not anything that you can undo. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, This is not something that's going to die and fall away. But of an imperishable seed. Through the living and enduring word of God. It's imperishable. It's indestructible. You have now been born of a new spirit that is not of you. Remember, this was a gift of God. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. And now you, if you're a Christian, you have been born of an imperishable seed. When Jesus hung on the cross, I already, already said this, but he said to Telestai, it is finished. The work is finished. That's why, that's why we have this gospel, that, that it is complete. When you receive him, it is complete in you. Point number three, you, you never earned it and you never will. You know, I think a lot of times we get confused. We, we are saved by grace, and we're getting, as we become Christians, we start doing all these good things, and it's these good things that I'm doing as a Christian that are going to allow me to enter into heaven, right? Is that how it works? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Even, even my good works that I do are a pittance compared to the righteousness of Christ. They don't amount to anything. When I die... I'm going to enter on the same golden ticket as everyone else. And that is the righteousness of Christ that has been imparted to me when I receive Christ as Lord and Savior. I am going to enter into heaven on Christ's righteousness, not upon my own. I will never measure up. And we always have to remember that. There shouldn't be any smug Christians sitting in the pews. In fact, a smug Christian is a contradiction. You see, eternal security isn't about being superior. It's about being grateful. We're supposed to be grateful. If we have experienced salvation and we understand what God has done for us, He didn't wash an okay sinner. He didn't wash uh, just a, a little bit bad person. We're completely and thoroughly corrupted. It's one of the reasons why we don't appreciate. We think that, oh, well, we, we weren't that bad. Just go outside and look at the bad people. The real bad people are out there, right? No, we're thoroughly. The Bible says that all of us are thoroughly corrupted. All of us are thoroughly sinful and deserving of separation from God. 
When we believe that we earned our salvation, we become smug and prideful. When we believe that we earn our salvation or maintain it, um, we become prideful. You see, you can't boast, just, just as Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not by works so that no man can boast. This is intentional. This is intentional so that we're not boastful about our, what God has done for us. We're supposed to be always just giving glory to the Father in heaven. My fourth point is something that I, I, I bet isn't popular and you may not have think, thought of recently, but if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, you're not your own. Who said you were free to go do whatever you want? Let me tell you, if you, if you, are, if, if you are a Christian, you're not free to go do whatever you want. Now, you have been freed. Freed from what? Freed from sin. Freed from the penalty of sin. Freed from the curse of sin. Right? Freed from eternal separation from God. You've been reconciled with God. But you belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says it this way. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. There it is. You are not your own. I didn't make this up. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought. You were bought. That Jesus Christ paid a tremendous price for you when he redeemed you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That is why Paul in Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, God expects you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice because we are not our own. Someone paid for you. Um, I don't want to, just for the sake of time, I don't want to delve too, too deeply into it. But, um, you know, you can go today in parts of the world, especially in the Middle East and, and North Africa, where they have so much chaos, and you can go to a slave market and you can buy slaves. A lot of the people that were captured in, in Syria that were not of the same sect as ISIS, those people were taken as slaves, sex slaves, slaves to, to work for the soldiers. Um, slavery slavery is, is an awful and horrendous thing. And, and the idea here is that, you know, we have been redeemed that, that, that God came and he paid and he snatched us out of that horrible slavery. He snatched us out of that horrible slavery. Um, and then lastly, if you, if you leave it, you never had it. I know that's what you're thinking. Well, what, I know somebody that was a Christian and they, they left the faith and they, they lost their faith. I know it, you know. Is that what the Bible says? 1 John 2, 19 through 20 says, They went out from us because they did not really belong to us. For that had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. See, that's what separates the ones that went out didn't have this anointing from the Holy One. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. And all of you know the truth. So you, you who have stayed, and you, those who, who remained faithful, you have the Holy Spirit. And you all knew what the truth was, is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ died for, for you. You all remained, right? I think that that's, that's a hard one. Uh, and I know that there are... There are those who, who will, there are some hard verses which we actually have been through in deeper recently where there are some verses where it appears as though people lost their salvation. But I think that, not to get into it for the sake of time, but you can go through the four soils, 
that, that Jesus taught in Matthew. And you can see that, that people uh, can come into our midst. They can come into the church. They can like what we're teaching. They can learn to, to, uh, to sing the songs. They can learn verses. But what never happens is to get before the Lord and say, save me. I need you, God. And see, one, one thing is religion. If you just come here every day and you sit in the pew and you learn the songs and you learn verses and everything's up here, that's a religious exercise. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. But the thing that makes you a Christian is an encounter with God himself where we get on our knees and we say, Lord, save me. I need you. Forgive me. So, so in conclusion, um, I think that we can use the story of the prodigal son as an example of that. And I've been a prodigal son at times in my life. The prodigal son was always a son. He always knew that he belonged to the father. He went off into the far land. He, he wallowed with the pigs. He got mixed up with some bad people. He lost everything he had. He squandered what he had, and God brought him to the end of himself. And, and what did he say? He said, I'm not, I'm not one of these. This is not my home. I have a father. I have a father. And my servant, the servants that my father has, even live better than this. I will go to my father and say I'm sorry. And even if I live as a servant, it will be better than this. See, he knew who his father was. And that's the difference between a true believer and a make-believer. We, we just finished 2 Peter 2.22, which I've heard called the parable of the prodigal pig. And, and Peter says this, A dog returns to its vomit, and the sow that has been washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. A son can never be anything but a son or daughter. A dog and a pig will always return home to the vomit and the mire. And that's how you explain it. That's how you explain that some people come in our midst and leave never to be seen again. But a true son will always come back to the father. Now, am I to judge? No. Only God can see in the heart. But we, we can go back to what uh, Jesus said in, in John 10 that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And that's something to, to do a self-examination. If you belong to God, he expects you to listen and to follow him. So, so, so let's, let's finish, let's wrap this up and, and uh, I'll let you all go. But before, I just want to pray for us and, um, you know, one, one last thing that I want to say before, before I finish that I think is important is, you know, one, one argument that, I've, that I heard last night, I, I sat with a friend from Mexico and, and I did this in Spanish uh, and, I, and I got out my dictionary on my phone in, in Spanish, I mean my, my Bible, and I tried to present these arguments. And he, he's of a different denomination, and, and I knew he would present some good arguments for me. And, um, and, and, he, and his argument was the one that I typically hear. Well, if I'm saved by grace and my eternal uh, future is secure, then I'm going to just go out and live however I want, Right? Why don't you sin all you want? Well, you know what? I do sin all I want. I do. I do sin all I want, and I sin a lot more than I want. It's God's Spirit that is in me that has changed my heart. And I want to not live in this flesh. I know what I'm capable of doing. I know who I'm capable of being apart from God. I'm, I'm not a good person. I can tell you that. 
But God has given us a new heart that wants to follow him. If you don't have a heart that follows God, then maybe you should examine yourself and ask, hey, am I really a Christian? Or if you are a Christian and you're so hardened and callous because you've been saying no, no, no to God for so long, maybe you need to fix that. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. All of it. All of it. He wipes the slate clean. So whether you don't know Christ today, or whether you're backslidden, or whether you're on fire and you're doing awesome, I just encourage you to pray with me. Cassidy, if you're, if you're doing a final song, I, I don't know if you um, had something planned, but just feel free to come on up. I'm going to finish out. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this message of truth that I can take comfort in, that I can wrap myself in when I fail, when I know that I'm not enough, Heavenly Father. I take your word. I take the confidence of, of who you are, of what you said that you have done for me, of the promises that you have given us, that I rest completely in you, Heavenly Father. It is not up to me. I thank you for all of that, Lord. I thank you that you loved us while we were yet sinners. We come before you, Heavenly Father, not with our good works, not with a pedigree or a PhD or anything contrived to man. Lord, we come before you empty-handed, We're empty-handed before you, Lord. The only thing that we can bring you this morning is our brokenness and our sin. Take these things and take our lives. Forgive us of all unrighteousness by the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We receive it, Lord. We receive you, Lord, as Lord and Savior. We receive you to be Lord of our lives. Be the boss. Guide us. Take control. We thank you for this gift of eternal life. We thank you that we receive salvation in you. Make us your children, Lord. Use our lives. Conform us to your likeness. Help us to live in obedience to your will and fill our hearts with love. Fill our hearts with love for you, Father, and for each other. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.